Would you bow with me once more and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the bread of life that nourishes our souls. And so we pray that once more it would nourish us today. Uh, speak to each one of our hearts and minds through it. Give us obedient hearts to respond to it as from you. Pray that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in your name. Amen. Now today we are continuing in our sermon series, Keeping the Mission in Focus, and we are moving on now to our third statement and our mission statement, Showing Christ's Love. We began two weeks ago with serving with our hands, last week loving with our hearts, and today showing Christ's love. I've shared with you once before the story of a mother and baby camel. And this mother and baby camel are talking to one another when the baby camel asks its mother, Mom, why have we got these huge three-toed feet? To which the mother replies, Well, son, when we trek across the desert, your toes will help you stay on top of the soft sand. A few minutes later, the young camel asks, Well, Mom, why do we have these long eyelashes? Well, son, they are to keep the sand out of your eyes when the wind blows on the trips and the great treks through the desert. Next, the son asks, Well, Mom, why have we got these great big humps on our backs? Well, son, they are to help us store water for our long treks across the desert, so we can go without drinking water for very long periods of time. After a few minutes of silent contemplation, the baby camel then said, So let's see if I got this right. We have these huge three-toed feet to stop us from sinking. Long eyelashes to keep the sand out of our eyes and these humps to store water on our backs all for long treks across the desert. Is that right? Yes, you've got it just right, my dear, the mother camel replied. So then, mum, the baby camel asked, why are we living in the San Diego Zoo? I love that story. Now, this is a fair question, isn't it? If a camel's designed for one thing, what's it doing living in a zoo? For quite simply, the camel's incredible, God-given, God-thought-out um, design and abilities for long treks across the desert, all of those abilities are not being put to full use in those friendly environs of the San Diego Zoo. So now, in a similar way, as we, as we think about this as it compares to our own lives, God has designed and spiritually gifted each Christian and each local church with the incredible abilities to engage in a long desert trek, so to speak. And if we were to compare that to what our long desert trek is, the very thing that we as the church body are created for, it is, of course, the Great Commission that Jesus gave to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, however, as we think about this great trek that we've been given, if our God-given abilities are not being put to use for their intended purpose, the very thing they were designed for, we too can end up like those two camels, living in our own personal zoo, whatever that might look like, staying where it's safe and where it's comfortable, and at the same time letting our God-given abilities go to waste, leaving our primary purpose unfulfilled. And just so we're crystal clear on this, I want to just 
state this as clear and, and, and uh, pointed as I possibly can. The primary purpose of this church, and indeed every church, the primary purpose of this church and every single disciple of Jesus Christ is to show Christ's love to the world. Showing Christ's love, the third motto we have on our wall. This is our primary purpose. So what we mean by this is that in both word and in action, we are declaring the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ loves sinners. Jesus Christ loves sinners. Loves them so much, in fact, that he would not leave them lost in their sin. And praise be to the Lord, that means us, because we are those sinners that Christ loves. And he loves us so much that he would not leave us in that condition. And so he came down from heaven to earth. And as we celebrate and rehearse at Christmas, the nativity, where he became flesh, he became a baby, just like us in every way, to go on to live the perfect sinless life that we could not live, to then become the perfect spotless sacrifice for all sin, to then willingly die the perfect death on the cross. And that is why the cross is the symbol of showing Christ's love, because there it shows that he took the full punishment of all of mankind's sins upon himself, thereby purchasing our full pardon and our full forgiveness. And so rather than receiving God's wrath as we deserve, we now receive God's grace and mercy and infinite love. And so finally, by physically rising from the dead on the third day, Jesus guaranteed for us that we too, through faith in him, will rise from the grave with him, both spiritually and physically, on the last day, and we will live with him forever. And so as we say all of those words, it's summarized into one statement, that is the good news, that is the gospel, that is what we mean by showing Christ's love. It is to preach, teach, and show the gospel to the world around us. And so as we focus in on our third line of our mission statement, I want us to be very clear that as we've sort of set the stage, each one of these mottos are linked to one another, serving with our hands, loving with our hearts. That is one of the primary ways that we show Christ's love. But the third, the emphasis is on the speaking the words, showing it, teaching it in tangible ways. And so make no mistake about this, as we seek to do this, I want you to be clear that this is not a sideline issue for the church. This isn't just one of those periphery items that, oh sure, we have a couple of people who go out and tell people about Jesus. This isn't just one of those take it or leave it items in our Christian faith. You know, sometimes I think we treat it that way. We treat it like it's, oh sure, there's evangelism, but that's like a side thing. And we sort of even adopt attitudes towards it like, well, you know what? It's just not our church's thing. I know there's other churches out there that are good at evangelism, but you know what? That whole making disciple thing, that's not really our bit. And so we'll just leave that for some other church or some other mission that, that they're really good at that. We'll let them do the evangelism. If we adopt that kind of attitude, we're missing, again, the primary purpose for which we have been called, created, and designed for. Because you see, the moment that this church, or any other church, any congregation for that matter, no matter how big or small it might be, the moment it stops actively showing Christ's love for the world poured out on Calvary, the moment that she stops actively declaring the gospel and making disciples, 
is the moment that she ceases to be the church at all. Oh, sure, it might still have church in the name, but if we were to stop proclaiming the message of the cross, you know, if we were to stop preaching Christ crucified and proclaiming the gospel, we might as well just all stand up and head home and lock the doors right now and not bother coming back. Because without the gospel message of Jesus Christ, without him crucified, we become nothing more than any other do-good charity or any other social club who likes getting together once in a while to fellowship and, and have a good time. We become nothing more than that. Because in Christ Jesus' death and in his resurrection resides the full power of God to transform lives, restore relationships, and alter the course of of entire families, communities, and even nations. And that's why Paul declared in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, this emphatic statement, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. How many times do we show that we are not ashamed of the gospel But how many times do we show there's some shame that we feel in the gospel through our actions or maybe through our words or lack of words? I would like to highlight for you something that he says in here. Salvation comes to everyone who believes. This is why Paul is not ashamed because he's seen it firsthand. He's experienced it in his own life. It transformed him. It is transforming others. And for this reason, even though others might ridicule him for it, he is not ashamed because he's seen it and he knows that it will bring salvation to everyone who believes. And everyone means everyone. That means me. That means you. That means the person beside you. That means the person behind you. That means the person across the street and around the corner and, you know, Everyone. (laughs) In fact, think of it this way. However long you've lived, how many people do you think you've met in your life? Some of you who are younger, it's maybe not that many, maybe 100, 200. Some of you who are a little older, you've met thousands of people in your life. Thousands of people, maybe even tens of thousands if you've really traveled and got around a lot. Now think about this. Of all of those thousands of people that you've ever met, you have never met one who did not need Jesus. You have never met a person in your life who did not need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs him for salvation. Now, they might, they might not yet know that they need Jesus, or maybe they've heard about Jesus and don't think they need him, but the bottom line is they do. They do. And the most wonderful news is that no matter what Jesus desire is that everyone be saved. Everyone. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 15 and verses 1 to 15, the text that Henry read for us just a little bit earlier in the service. And here we see Mark's account of the preliminaries leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And on the day that Jesus was executed, there was one man in Jerusalem who learned firsthand the truth of Jesus literally dying in his place on the very cross that he rightfully deserved. And his name, of course, was Barabbas. Let me set the scene for you. We go back to first century Jerusalem. And remember first that this was an occupied city. 
It was occupied by the mighty Roman Empire. So that meant that their rulers were in authority over it and their soldiers were keeping the, the, the peace, as it were. Pax Romana, the peace under the sword of Rome. And so, of course, the Jews are chafing under the Pax Romana, the sword of Rome that dictated peace on their terms. And so they, they hated their Roman occupiers is a fair assessment. And many of them, the zealots, were constantly plotting against their Roman oppressors, looking for ways to throw off their shackles. And so through espionage, through subversion, they were always planning revolts in the hopes of one day driving out the Roman occupation. And so in an effort to placate these these Jews who had never seemed to be content under the Roman occupation, The Romans had a custom of releasing one Jewish prisoner each year during the Jewish festival. And so now in Mark chapter 15, verses 6 and 7, we read, here the the governor, of course, Pontius Pilate, is front and center. Now it was the custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And so here we're introduced to this man named Barabbas. We know very little about him. There's no backstory given other than what is basically written here, a couple of other lines in the other Gospels. But interestingly enough, I believe Barabbas has often been portrayed in a somewhat misleading way over the years. And we've kind of portrayed him as this madman, this psychotic serial killer with wild bushy hair and he's just frothing at the mouth. But I don't believe that's what Barabbas was really like. What we gather from this biblical account and what we know about the historical context is that Barabbas was a zealot. And that wasn't an uncommon thing for first century uh, Israel because, as I just said, Rome was hated by everyone. And so the zealots were basically the patriots, the freedom fighters, who were looking to throw them off. And so here we see that Barabbas was clearly one of these fanatical nationalists. And so in one of these uprisings, he has committed murder. Now, whether that meant murder of Jews or murder of Romans, we don't know, because it could have been both. Because the reality was the zealots hated the Jews who collaborated with the Romans. And so when you think about someone like Matthew, a tax collector, a Jew who's collaborating with the Romans to gather their taxes, this is a prime target for a zealot to come in with a dagger and finish him off. This is the kind of man that Barabbas was. He may have assassinated Jews who collaborated as well as if he had his chance killing Roman soldiers themselves. And so whatever the case is, he has killed people probably more than one, probably quite a number. And so we gather from all of this that though he's a killer, he's not some some serial killer. He's doing it for a nationalistic cause. He wants Israel free. And so because of this, he is, of course, accused and convicted of treason against Rome itself. And treason against Rome itself meant that if you were slated for execution, you didn't get the nice, relatively nice, quick and easy execution by beheading, where it's over fairly quickly. No, if you were accused of treason against Rome itself, death by crucifixion was your lot. And so while it is true that Barabbas was a murderer, because it was primarily Romans or Roman sympathizers that he'd killed, he would have been viewed by many of the Jewish people 
as a freedom fighter who is trying to drive off the Roman occupation. And so interestingly enough, this is exactly what many Jews also hoped that Jesus would do. Even Jesus' own disciples believed that in the end of all things, Jesus was going to drive off the Romans and establish reestablish Israel's kingdom. And so it's no surprise then that when we read through Jesus' disciples, his 12 closest followers, one of them is Simon the Zealot. And now think about worlds colliding as Simon the Zealot is now a colleague with Matthew, the former tax collector. So it's a big tent Jesus has got here with some tensions within even his own group. And so we see here that there is a thought within Jesus' group, Simon the Zealot especially, that he is going to drive off the Romans. And so the Jews as a nation are very sympathetic to people like Barabbas who are fighting against the Romans. And so now back to the text. In verse 8, we are introduced now to this crowd who has gathered outside of Pontius Pilate's palace. And this is a very different gathering than the crowd of people who had welcomed Jesus to the city of Jerusalem just a week earlier as he'd come in on the Mount of Olives and they had cried Hosanna and waved palm branches. That earlier Sunday assembly was composed mostly of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. But this angry mob outside of Pilate's office has come to lobby for Barabbas. They love the bravery and patriotism of this man who dared to kill the hated Romans. But also, we know that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, are plotting against Jesus in and through all of this time. They're weaving their own schemes, and so they are ready to use whatever crowd is available to meet their own ends. And so they begin to stir up this crowd against Jesus. And here we see the interests of these two groups converge. And in verse 9, Pilate asks the crowd, Whom shall I release to you? And he mentions Jesus not by name, but by his alleged title, King of the Jews. Now, evidently, in this moment, Pilate is sympathetic towards Jesus. He wants to see him released. And so he believes that Jesus' popularity with the masses is going to win his release over someone he views as only a fanatical murderer. And so he puts up the two choices before them, thinking, here's Barabbas on the one hand, here's Jesus on the other. They're, of course, going to release Jesus. But Pilate miscalculated. He misjudged the crowd. And he didn't know that they're stirred up by the chief priests and the Pharisees. This mob is now, they're thinking about releasing their freedom fighter, Barabbas. And here's Jesus on the chopping block. And so willingly, they begin to shout, give us Barabbas. And Pilate, you can see in this text the shock, the dismay on his face. What? Why would you want a murderer released to you? But they kept shouting, give us Barabbas. And finally asked, then what should I do with this king of the Jews? And the response was loud and clear, crucify him. And when Pilate asked why, what crime has he committed? They shouted even louder, crucify him, crucify him. And we can see in all of this Satan's hand as he's stirring up the evil hearts, the hard hearts of first the Pharisees out of jealousy and envy, they want Jesus dead. And now the crowd themselves, who perhaps some of them had been that day shouting Hosanna, but now here they are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now think back to that very morning. Barabbas is locked up in a jail cell, shackled most likely to the wall. He knows he's a dead man walking. 
Shackled there within that dungeon, he likely would have known that his execution was slated for that very day. He also knew that it was not going to be a quick death. He was going to be executed by the horror of crucifixion, a method of execution so painful that a new word was invented within the Roman vocabulary to describe it, excruciating. So when we use the word excruciating, it was derived as a word to describe the horror of crucifixion, excruciating. And so one can well imagine Barabbas's building fear and impending doom, the foreboding of what was coming before him. And so as he hears the guard's footsteps and his cell door is open and it swings open on a rusty hinge and he is anticipating the worst. But then we can equally imagine Barabbas's surprise, shock, disbelief, and then finally utter relief. That once the guards removed his shackles, rather than leading him away to be flogged and crucified, one of them simply says to him, Barabbas, you are free to go. You are free to go. Someone named Jesus is dying in your place. How did that hit Barabbas that day? What did that do to him that another man was dying in his place? Well, on this, the scripture is silent. However, there is an early church tradition that states that Barabbas, following his release, blended in with the crowd that day and followed up to Golgotha and watched from a distance as Jesus died on the cross that was meant for him. Now, how this impacted Barabbas is a matter of speculation. The scripture doesn't say, but still I wonder. Did Barabbas come to believe in Jesus? Did he believe in this man who died in his place that he had in fact died for him on a deeper level? That he had died to save him from his sins and so placed his faith in him? We don't know. But whatever the answer, one thing that I find very, very interesting is the meaning of his name. You may recall how in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, in Hebrew, Bar simply means son. So, Simon, Peter, his full name is Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning Simon, son of Jonah. Jonah was his father's name. And so, when we look again at the name Bar-Abbas, Directly translated, it means son of Abbas. So who is Abbas? Well, if we flip back to Mark chapter 14, verse 36, and we look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, look at how he begins his prayer. He prays, Abba, Father. Abba, Abbas. It's the same word. Abba, Abbas, meaning Father. And so Bar means son of, put them together, and Bar Abbas means son of the father, son of the father. And also in the Jewish context, it was understood that the father being referred to in this name was the heavenly father. So Barabbas' very name means son of the heavenly father. And so what becomes clear is that his parents at least gave him this name with the hope that he would live up to the full meaning of his name, Barabbas, son of the Heavenly Father. Now, though only God knows if 
he did make that decision to become his child. I like to think that watching Jesus die in his place on that very cross that was meant for him would have changed his, his heart and his life forever, and he would have believed and put his faith in his Savior. For my friends, make no mistake about it, God desires that each and every last one of us, each and every last one of us, be changed forever and become sons or daughters of the Heavenly Father. For make no mistake that just as Jesus physically died in Barabbas' place on Barabbas' cross, so too he died spiritually in your place and in mine. For just like Barabbas before Christ, we were imprisoned by our sins, condemned before God for our crimes against him. You see, because God is perfect, just, holy, and altogether righteous, he could not just ignore sins, for they are a direct affront and challenge to everything that he is. And for this reason, our sin cannot be forgiven and pardoned unless someone pays for it in full. And the only way that we can pay for it is by getting what we deserve, both physical death on earth and spiritual death in hell. But you see, God loves us immensely, but he hates our sin with a passion. God hates our sin so much. Think about it this way. If a parent has a child who is diagnosed suddenly with a malignant cancerous tumor, how much do you think that parent hates that cancerous tumor growing within their child? A parent hates that tumor with everything within them. Because that tumor is going to lead eventually, if untreated, if unremoved, it's going to lead to their child's death who they love so deeply. And in the same way, God our Father, he sees that tumor of sin within us and he hates it that way because he knows what it leads to, our death. And so it has to be dealt with. Just as the cancer has to be dealt with in a child, so too sin must be removed from us if we are to live, if we are to be healed. And we could not and we cannot remove that tumor of sin ourselves. We just can't. Only God can. And thankfully, he made a way that we don't have to die, but we can be healed and live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. This is the way that he has made. And so just like with Barabbas condemned to die, at just the right time, Jesus took our place. For what Jesus did on Calvary's cross is just as real and powerful today in the year 2020 as it was the very day he died. It is just as real. His blood is just as powerful to cleanse and to cover sin today as it was then. In 1 John we read, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everyone. We come back to that word. He died for everyone, us included. Praise be to God, us included. Our sins paid for in full. The only requirement is that each person must exercise their own will to place faith in Jesus, to believe in him as the Son of God, and to receive that full pardon that he has already paid for with his own life upon the cross. And now when you stop and think about it, 
It's like every single person in the town of Killarney, and indeed planet Earth, it's like they're walking around with a winning lottery ticket in their pocket. And it's the biggest lottery ever. It's the Super Bowl, the, the Super Bowl lottery for billions of dollars, and it's in their pocket, and it's the winning numbers. But all they have to do is take it in and cash it. They have to redeem it. But they haven't done it yet. And maybe some of them are walking around not knowing that that lottery ticket is in their pocket. And it just breaks my heart to know that there are so many people who have not yet redeemed that ticket. They have not yet exercised their faith in Christ as their Savior. They have not yet received his full pardon. And for many, it's simply because, like I said, they've simply not heard. They don't know about it. And for others, it's because they haven't had anyone clearly explain it to them. They've heard about it, but it's just confusing. It doesn't really make sense. And still for others, they've heard about it. They've had someone explain it to them, but their sinful nature is what's resisting because they don't want to change. But whatever the individual reasons are, to die without Jesus Christ as personal Savior is to meet the same end. Rather than eternal life, they receive eternal death and separation from God. And so now we come back around full circle to where we began this morning. This is where we come in, the church. For just as the camel was designed by God to trek across that great desert, we, the church, are designed by God to actively and urgently show Christ's love to the people, to the town, to the world around us. To share the gospel is our purpose. It's what we were made for. And if we won't do it, who will? Because God hasn't given this assignment to anyone else. He's given it to his children, to his disciples. It's our assignment. It's what we are designed for. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10, 14 to 15, But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Good news. Just this past week, I was scrolling through my, my Facebook feed and I read a story that Myrna had shared on her Facebook page that just grabbed me and it powerfully illustrates, illustrates how important and how urgent showing Christ's love truly is. Let me share it with you. An 11-year-old boy was dressing warmly. He put on his jacket and then he told his father, Okay, Dad, I'm ready. His dad, the pastor, replied, Ready for what? Well, Dad, it's time to go out and distribute our flyers. Dad replied, Son, it's cold outside and it's drizzling. The child looked surprised at his father and said, But Dad, people need to know about God even on rainy days. Dad replied, Son, I'm just not going out in this weather. So with despair, the child finally said, Well, Dad, can I go alone, please? And his father thought for a moment and then said, Okay, son, you can go. Here's the flyers. Just be careful. Thank you, Dad. And so with this, the son ran out into the rain. And the boy walked all the streets of the town, handing out the flyers to the people that he met along the way. After two hours of walking in the rain and in the cold, and finally with his last flyer in his hand, he stopped in a corner to see 
if there was someone to give that flyer to, but now the streets were deserted. The rain had picked up. And then he turned to the very first house that he saw. He walked to the front door and he knocked on the door. No one came. He turned to leave, but he decided he would knock once more, a little bit louder. Still no one came, but something within the boy just said, keep knocking on this door. And so louder he knocked. And finally, after some time went by, a lady came to the door with a very sad expression on her face. She finally opened the door a crack and asked, What can I do for you, son? And with radiant eyes and a bright smile, the child held up his flyer, handed it to her and said, Lady, I'm sorry if I bothered you, but I just want to tell you that God really loves you. And that I came to give you my last flyer, and it talks all about God and his great love for you. And the boy handed her the flyer. She took it. And finally she just said, Thank you, son. Thank you. She closed the door. And that was that. Well, the next Sunday morning, as the pastor, the boy's father, walked up to the pulpit, when the service began, he asked, does anyone have a testimony or something they'd like to share with the congregation? And quietly, in the back row of the church, an older lady slowly stood up. No one had ever seen her there before. And when she started talking, this radiant and glorious look was just glowing on her face and from her eyes. And she said, nobody in this church knows me. I have never been here before. Even last Sunday, I was not a Christian. My husband died a while ago, leaving me totally alone in this world. Last Sunday was a particularly cold and rainy day, and it was also in my heart. And on that day, I came to the end of my road. I had no hope, and I did not want to live anymore. So I took a chair and a rope, and I went up to the attic of my house. I tied one end of the rope to the rafters of the roof. I climbed onto that chair And I put the other end of that rope around my neck. And I stood there on that chair so alone and heartbroken, waiting for the moment to throw myself off, when I heard a loud knocking on my door downstairs. And so I thought to myself, I'll just wait for a minute, and whoever it is will leave. No one visits me anyways. And so I waited, and I waited. But that door just kept knocking and kept getting louder. And finally, it got so loud I couldn't ignore it anymore. I took the rope off my neck. I stepped down off the chair and I answered the door. And who is standing there? This most radiant and angelic child that I've ever seen. His smile, I could never describe it. The words that came out of his mouth made my heart, dead for so long, come back to life when he said with the voice of an angel, Lady, I just want to tell you, God really loves you. And when that little angel disappeared between the cold and the rain, I closed my door and I read every last word on that flyer he gave me. I then went up to the attic to remove that chair and rope. I didn't need them anymore. As you see, I am now a saved daughter of the king. And as the direction of the boy when he left was towards this church, I came here today to personally say thank you to that little boy who came just in time and rescued my life from an eternity in hell and replaced it with an eternity with God. And as the lady shared throughout the congregation, tears just flowed freely, none more so than the pastor, the father of that little boy, who had said, I don't want to go out in the rain. And he came down from the pulpit, and he wrapped his arms around his son, tears flowing freely. 
This story pierced my heart. I've been that pastor sometimes. It's not that you don't want to share the gospel. It's not that you don't know that people need the gospel, but we make all sorts of excuses, whether it's the rain or something else. It's so easy to make excuses. It's so easy to put off sharing that good news of Jesus' love with others, saying, you know what, it's not going to rain tomorrow. I'll do it then. I'll be less busy next week. I'll do it then. You know, I'm just really in a hectic stretch of my life right now, but I'll eventually get around to sharing the gospel with others. But no matter what they are, no matter how we dress them up, they're excuses. And so remember that to those who haven't yet received the gospel, the matter is always of utmost importance and urgency. And so may we allow that sense of urgency to fuel our passion, our willingness, and our obedience to stop making excuses and to just go and show Christ's love to others, even today. Amen. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the cross. We thank you that you didn't put it off. You didn't say, I'll get around to it some other millennia, but you at just the right time said, I am going to go and put my life on the line for this world so that everyone, Barabbas included, Danny Greening included, and everyone here today included, could be saved. That we wouldn't have to receive that death, that punishment that our sins rightfully deserve, but instead receive full pardon, grace, and forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. And so, Father, as we were just reminded in this story, may we recognize that this matter of sharing the good news of the gospel is always of utmost urgency to those who have not yet received it. And so may we have that same attitude of the little boy who said, people need to hear about God's love even in the rain. And so, Lord, whatever that rain is, whatever those excuses are that we keep making to ourselves as to why we're not yet sharing the gospel with someone that you've laid on our hearts, I pray, Lord, just help us to have the courage to set those aside and that even today that we would step out in faith and to just make a phone call, to make a visit, whatever it takes, Lord, to just show that love of Christ to those who have not yet received it. Bless this church to that end, Lord. I pray that in this year we would see people come to salvation in you and that we would hear testimonies shared right here in this place of how you have changed lives through the power of the cross. For this is our purpose and our design. We embrace it as from you, our Lord and Savior. To this we commit ourselves in your name. Amen.